Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Good morning, afternoon, or evening. And welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you wanna make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, friends. Randall here, joined by Mel. Say hi, Mel. Hello. We're back with another installment of our ongoing On Writers series, in which Mel and I chat with modern horror authors we think are cool and exciting. Back so soon, you say? We are. Last month, we chatted with Brian Evanson, the ruthless author of such great books as Last Days, Song for the Unraveling of the World, and The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell, Highly recommend that episode, especially if you're a gamer. And this month, we're back with Paul G. Tremblay, who you might know from such books as 2015's A Head Full of Ghosts and last year's The Pallbearers Club. Today, that is Friday, February 3rd, he is also seeing the release of M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin, an adaptation of Paul's 2018 novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, which was the winner of a Bram Stoker Award and a Locus Award. We chat with Paul about a little bit of everything, but in terms of novels, we're focusing primarily on the Paul Bearers Club. No spoilers, but we will be talking about the book, which we recommend highly. So it's a book that, I don't know, at least according to the online response, tends to drive people a little insane. Mel, what was your response to the Paul Bearers Club? I was very skeptical going into the Paul Bearers Club because immediately you do notice that it starts with a non-traditional format. There are two voices contributing to the book. The book itself is a found memoir with someone who found the memoir making notes in the margins. Um, regrettably, Randall and I had to read this book on our phones. If you can find a physical <laughs> copy, do so because I think that is a far more enjoyable medium yeah. through which to enjoy it. But... Um, I normally really don't go in for that kind of thing, or at least it it fills me with a deep skepticism going in. Like, I am kind of like, you have to earn this, right? Um, and I, I we do talk with Paul a little bit about this, and he says, you know, you, you do have to earn the gimmick. It has to be really part and parcel to the theme of the story, and I think that this book really pulls that off. Um, it, like many of his other books, is deeply concerned with ambiguity. I don't think it's a spoiler to say, like, they're 
is a lot of um, contradictory evidence on either side of a debate of whether or not something is truly happening, of whether or not something is truly supernatural. Um, yeah. And we get into um, how I really love that shit. Like, I, I really love when a book can... Um, put in the work to make its ambiguity specific um, rather than vague and hand wavy. And I think this book um, is so, is so impressive because it's ambiguity is very specific, but it's atmosphere is like huge and overpowering um, and, and very, and very tragic and, and very deep. Um, and I think that no matter which way you interpret the story, that tragedy suffuses the whole thing and uh, is really is really deftly done. Um, I ended up loving this book, and it it won me over like far beyond my expectations. Uh, Randall, how did how did you experience it? Uh, very similarly, I although I th- I'm kind of a philistine in that sometimes, like I want I want to know. Like you asked me when it was over, which way I leaned in terms of what was true and what wasn't. And I did not have an answer and I was frustrated by that. But it's a it's a very good frustration. It's an edifying frustration. It's the kind of thing that I sit with and turn around and it makes the book more memorable. And I really love the characters. I love the central dynamic of the book. I think that was what I responded to most strongly. And um, I also loved its kind of immersion in uh, 80s and 90s punk culture, which uh, I wouldn't call myself a punk, but I, I've dabbled in punk. So it was, it was cool to hear. Thank you. Well, not in the, not in the musical Punk sense, parenthetical probably. derogatory. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, and then would you say sort of that ambiguity and that idea of, 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 uh, of not knowing the actual truth extends to uh, the cabin at the end of the world? Yes, they're very they're very different books. Um, I do think another thing I admire about Paul Tremblay's work is that he is clearly obsessed with ambiguity in a way that makes that made this conversation like very rewarding for me because I get to be like, what is it about? Like, why are you always <laughs> why are you always like stirring that pot? Um, but yes, they both do deal with ambiguity. Um, after reading Paul Bear's Club, I went back to the cabin at the end of the world because I wanted to reread it and also because I wanted it fresh for the adaptation being yeah. out. Um, and I was struck by how different they were. Um, there, there are so many like key differences. One being that like the Paul Bears Club takes place over like a really broad scope of time, and uh, the cabin at the end of the world is is very very delineated and, and small in its time, uh, in the the length of time that it takes place during. Um, real good grammar. So, um, <laughs> and it's also just the POVs are are changing. So I I don't know. They're they're very different books, but they do both truck in this kind of tremble signature what's really going on and does the answer to that question um matter in the way that i think it matters which i think yeah. is like what readers have to grapple with when they when they engage with his work yeah i think that's a great way to put it and um yeah and so we haven't seen the movie yet it it comes out on february 3rd which is the day we're releasing this episode and so what we and uh, Paul was actually going to see the movie. He was going to the premiere the day before we spoke to him. So he uh, can't speak necessarily to the depth of the film, but he can talk about his experience with it. And he also uh, gives us some teases for what's to come in his uh, career. He's got a new book that he's working on that sounds about a cursed film, which sounds so cool. And he's got some great ideas on that. And then he's also uh, gives us an h- update on where the head full of ghosts adaptation stands. If you recall, if you follow the trades, you might have seen. Uh, I think it was back in 2019, maybe that uh, that they 
announced that there was some real movement on it, and he gives us an update on where it currently exists. So yeah, we're kind of all over the place in this episode. It's a great conversation. So enjoy, and uh, we'll see you next time. Ciao. Paul, thank you so much for joining us here on the Losers Club. Uh, Say hello to our listeners and tell us a little bit about Stephen King as he factors into your life, your work, uh, and beyond, if there is beyond. (laughs) No, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Thank you for letting me into the club. Of course. Um, (laughs) I was going to make a Simpsons joke about No Paul's Club or something. (laughs) You know, the No Homers episode is my favorite. Uh, Anyway. No, like, I mean, for so many, like so many other people, you know, Stephen was really a big reason why I became a reader, never mind a writer. Um, And briefly, like my sort of path to writing, I think is different than a lot of other writers. I didn't even become a reader until my early 20s, never mind a writer. I was a math major in college and uh, which is kind of hard to explain (laughs) a little bit in the (laughs) master's in math. But what had happened now, so previously I had experienced Stephen's work almost solely through the 80s films, like growing up and just seeing you know, obviously all the movies, Cujo, Pet Cemetery, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so anyway, when I was just about to graduate from college, um, actually right after I graduated from college, my girlfriend, who's my wife, Lisa, bought me Stephen King's The Stand for my 22nd birthday. Nice. And I inhaled it. And then- That was my yeah, first too. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, and then Lisa and I did a long distance relationship thing because I, I went away to Vermont and she was in Boston. And so- you know, being a grad student is different than undergrad. There aren't as many parties to go to, I'll yeah. just say flatly. So no, like when I was there, I just I just started reading through all of Stephen's work and through Dance Macabre, I, you know, I found, you know, Peter Schraub and Shirley yeah. Jackson and Clive Barker and, you know, all these other amazing writers. And then at the end of those two years, barely by the skin of my teeth, getting my master's degree in math, um, <laughs> I got my first teach- high school teaching job as a math teacher. And right at the same time, I had this weird itch to try writing a story. And I stress the word weird itch because, like I said, I was a math major, right? Uh, like no training in writing stories. Like, why would I think I could write one? But I just think as a as an adult, like, the, you know, there's always a time, I think, in your adult life, hopefully earlier rather than later, where you realize, oh, you know, it's okay to actually be passionate and like things. Yeah. <laughs> in high school, it's uncool to try too hard. It's uncool <laughs> to, you know, appear that you like things. So that was definitely in our just, era. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. relate to that. I, I'm almost jealous of um, of like the uh, the cultures as they exist today, where it's like you're almost celebrated for being like or there's like fandoms that are so re- like like accessible, you know, right. Like I had to sort of hide the fact that I love Final Fantasy VI so much when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you were into horror from an early age, though, if you're consuming yeah. those movies. And yeah, for, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean. I've always had like a love terrified relationship with horror, uh, right? You know, like seven, eight, nine years old, I was watching pre-cable television and I'm aging myself. But we had a program in in Boston area called Creature Double Feature. Yeah. And on Saturdays, they would show a Godzilla movie, which is what really drew me in. And then the second movie would be a horror movie. And, you know, and some of them are like really bad. That's kind of stuff that would end up on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. But as a kid, like I had Attack of the Killer Shrew nightmares. Like all, you know, these movies <laughs> yeah. gave me nightmares. Uh big time scaredy cat still am like I, you know i go up the basement stairs quickly or mm-hmm. or you know forbid if i'm home by myself at night like it's <laughs> you know it's it's still <laughs> i still think those thoughts so I yeah know. yeah that's awesome uh, so like when you think about king like favorite books like what are the ones that stand out um as like 
your personal favorites and then maybe the ones that you would maybe credit as being most influential on your work. I noticed, obviously, in Paul Bear's Club, you name check both It and Pet Cemetery, <laughs> which are probably my top those two. Those are my top so, two. Yeah, yeah. I love those. So I think that was, you know, you're in good company here. Yeah. Pet Cemetery is definitely in the top, like two or three. It's, it's you know, it's hard not to put the stand at the top just because, mm-hmm. you know, I think that turned me into a reader. So much so, like, I'm not afraid to go back and reread it because I don't think it'll be any good. But like, I think, you know, that one time reading it, like I'm going to leave that as like this special thing. Cause I've gone back and reread so many of his other, right. so many of his other books. I, I love his short fiction too. Um, I just, you know, discussed with, with, with the King cast, sorry to, to cross podcasts. Oh no. Um, We're used his, to it. It's totally yeah. fine. <laughs> his, uh, his short story, uh, the end of the whole mess, Yeah, which was just a lot of fun to, to read. So I don't know. It, it's just hard for me to pick favorites. Although I, you know, Pet Cemetery and a more recent one that's become a favorite actually is, um, oh my gosh, why my why is my brain not work? Hopefully you guys have a magical editor. Is it a, is it a recent recent book? Within ten years, eleven twenty two. No, uh, revival. Summers? revival. Revival. Thank you. Revival. Yes, people, revival. People love revival. Yeah. Yes, revival. It's fine. When I first read it, uh, I was like, oh, this is good, but I don't know. But then I reread it by audio and I was like, oh, my God, what, I, what was I thinking when I first yeah. read this? This is this is amazing. This is genius. the one with David Morris, the audiobook. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I that's I never do audiobooks. That's the one King audiobook I've done because I was on a super yeah. long drive. So that's just a funny coincidence. We've talked to David Morris on this podcast. He's he's ah. he's a great because he's done so much King stuff. He's such an interesting guy, like, especially when you talk to him through like the lens of King. So, yeah. oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been doing a lot of just really quickly King rereads with audiobooks because uh, you know, I walk my dog, you know, usually like 45 minutes to an hour a day. So, yeah. I find, you know, th- th- that's a good chance to, to, you know, reread books that way. Yeah. yeah. Have you listened have you... to the, uh, sorry, I, I want to, I'm so eager to yeah. talk about Paul Bear's Club, Randall. <laughs> if you have more King questions, we can always circle back, but I yes, want to know we'll if, if, um, you've listened to the audiobook of the Paul Bear's Club, Paul, because I hear it's a really, really cool experience. <laughs> I, yeah, I've listened to part of it. Like I haven't had a chance to, to, to read the whole, or listen to the whole thing. And I typically don't listen to my audiobooks, um, partly because my family makes fun of me if they see like the CDs in the car. So like, what are you doing listening to your own stuff? I'm like, no, uh, no, but absolutely. Uh, so, um, so amazingly, you know, so happy and, and proud of the job that those you know, performers did on the book. Yeah, um, especially uh, Z Sands, who who did the voice of Mercy. I think really, yeah. you know, really nailed it. That's yeah. awesome. Mel, do you want to kick off with our first Paul Bear's Club question? Sure. And we'll try to keep this, you know, spoiler free. Um, but for sure. those of you who haven't read the book, the, the reason I ask that is that there are dueling voices in this novel. Um, uh, there's two narrators of a kind. And so, I, yeah, I really want to get uh, a copy of the audiobook and, and listen <laughs> to how that's approached. It sounds so cool. Um, but to get into the Paul Bear's Club and... and um, a facet of your writing that I am always really drawn to. You've answered a lot of questions about it before, but your attraction to ambiguity, I feel like is such a present force in your fiction. Um, for me, it's like one of the biggest draws. And I know that you've said um, in the past that it, it, it sort of reflects a fascination with all the uncertainties that we deal with in life. A big one being, you know, what happens after we die? We have no idea. Um, right. Has your fascination with ambiguity morphed at all as you produce each book are you compelled toward it for the same reasons or is there a particular type that you were aiming for here so all, all great questions and thank you um I, you know i think you know for any writer i think you know there's so much writer advice out there and some of it is helpful some of it is not 
very little of it is universal. I mean, I think that's part of the problem for any writer is finding what works for you. But I think one of the one of the few universal pieces of advice that, that's worth anything is, you know, you know, not write what you know, but write write about your obsessions, you know, lean into your obsessions, because they're going to crop up in there, whether or not you put them in there consciously sometimes, um, you know, which has sort of been the case with ambiguity. Although now, obviously, I'm, I'm quite self-aware about doing that, you know, multiple times. Um, and my my sort of guidepost is if I'm going to use ambiguity, I don't want it to be like a cheap twist at the end of a 30 minute TV show kind of trick. Like it has to be part and parcel of the theme of the book. It has to be why hopefully this book is scary or dread inducing or like that. So um, that's typically what I'm thinking about. And I'm so I'm weirdly to the point where in the last few books, like I wasn't necessarily planning on it being super ambiguous, but it gets in there anyway. <laughs> and so like, you know, I might look at a certain book as like, Oh, I think, you know, I have, I think I know, I think I have an idea of how this ends, you know, the quote unquote real ending, as yeah. opposed to some of my other books, like a head full of ghosts. You know, I get asked all the time what, what really happened is like, I will never tell. <laughs> and, and and I don't, and I don't know, like for that book, it's purposely, I don't know. Whereas something like the Paul Berry club, not a, not a spoiler even though there's multiple interpretations you have, I, I definitely lean one way. Yeah. See, that's funny because I think Mel and I were joking about doing the worst interview ever where all we did was just make you <laughs> tell us what happened at the end of all of your books. But no, but I think that is sort of the appeal. And I'll, I'll admit, like, I was pulling my fucking hair out during the last like 40 pages of of Paul Barry's Club in a good way because like you're driving me crazy because I you know there is that that lizard part of my brain that desires the answer the clear mm. answer you know and I and I think Mel and I are, are readers who both embrace ambiguity but she I think revels in ambiguity where I yeah. sort of grudgingly accept it because I know that it will be an ultimate ultimately more enriching experience and yeah. so yeah and because I think like Mel your next question here I'm, I'm going to give a stab at trying to sort of like break breaking it down because it's something we talked about a lot because it's like there is a meticulousness to your ambiguity you know it's not just something where like you said you you sort of lean towards an answer with Paul Bearer's Club specifically and I think that you can see that but it's like you sort of plan what what's obvious in this book is that you plan out and you account for all these threads to ensure that something could be interpreted mm. in multiple ways and any way selected has the quote-unquote evidence to back that up. So like, would you say that that's true? Cause I think that's the vibe we got. Like, do you really get that detailed? How do you approach ambiguity from like that planning perspective when yeah. you are in the early stages? Well, thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate that. And yeah, I would say, you know, especially with, um, you know, Paul Bros club, certainly, but I'd say, especially with a head full of ghosts and cabinet at the end of the world, you know, the whole time I, I was envisioning, you know, the scales of justice, right. Trying to balance both sides, you know, for those two earlier books, especially because you know, living in the age of misinformation, how it's so hard to know what's true or not. Yeah. Like I, I wanted, I wanted sort of my sort of form of ambiguity, not to be that I was necessarily withholding information from the reader, but you were getting a data glut. You were getting too much information, um, information that maybe, you know, explains the other or it contradicts the other. So yeah. like, you know, I think hopefully part of the frustration is a little bit fun is that the answer is there somewhere. You're just not sure <laughs> mm -hmm. which pieces to put together as opposed to, again, like withholding. And and the reason why, like, I'm really interested in that is because I kind of feel like that really mirrors our 21st century existence, right? Yeah. Like the, the truth is out there somewhere, not to quote X-Files, yeah. but like, <laughs> how, how do you put it together? Like, how do you That's, know, right? That makes so much sense. Um, 
And yeah, that is, I, I feel like ambiguity is often a hand wave from, from other forms of media where it's kind of just vague and like, there's a thematic resonance here. It's atmospheric. You can sort of decide. But with you, mm-hmm. I do picture like a cork board of like, well, if I say <laughs> this, I have to say this. And I'm like, it's so specific. There's so much effort that goes into it. Um, and yeah, we, we just really dug that. Um, well, yeah, I love that you so- said it's sort of like this there's almost an overwhelming quality to the amount of information and the amount of depth in which you tackle certain, I don't know, strands of thought or even um, subplots within like art's life, right? Mm -hmm. Or like his his immersion into various scenes or, you know, I think that that to me is where some of that frustration came from. But like I say, frustration can be a very good thing and a very enriching (laughs) thing when you're reading. And I think sometimes I'm like, where is he leading me right now? And what is valid and what isn't? And I think swimming through all of that, like I love that you kind of brought up the modern uh, sort of, I don't know, um, news space. I mean, it reminds me a lot, not to make this comparison, but it reminds me a lot of the Steve Bannon quote where he's like, you know, flood the area with shit, you know? And Mm. it's like, certainly this isn't shit, but there is that (laughs) sense that, uh, you know, there is like a flood of information here and wading through that I think can be uh, in this case a very enriching process so I think that that's like I don't know a really interesting because usually I think ambiguity is achieved by restraint right you know yeah Yeah, thank you I would say the the last thing besides I really like that Mel described me as sort of like a serial killer writing with my (laughs) cork board up on the walls (laughs) Um, actually Grady Hendrix does that I don't know if you've seen his if you go to his Instagram he actually keeps a he calls it a wall of crazy Oh, and, nice. Uh, all sorts of stuff uh, tacked up on there. You know, I wonder if part of it is, you know, as a Gen Xer, you know, is we were promised, hey, you know, in my early 20s, here comes it. Here comes the information age, right? Yeah. It's going to change. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to change everything. And it did. And there are a lot of wonderful things about it. But then sort of just to see sort of, uh, you know, the not so wonderful parts, not only take over, but really sort of come up <laughs> every aspect of our lives. Um yeah. I know. So that's why for me, maybe that's partly why I'm like so obsessed with it because I wasn't born into this, you know, digital age, like watching my kids who are, you know, late teens and early twenties, you know, they, they obviously engage with, you know, virtual life much differently than I do. It's because they were mm-hmm. born into it. Um, yeah. And, you know, they all have different opinions and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're just starting to see the age in which like the art that is being created by people who have spent their whole lives on the internet. Like mm-hmm. I think about um, uh, the movie, we're all going to the world's fair, which came out last year, which I would highly recommend. That is a movie to me that is very much about growing up in the digital age. And I find that, I don't know, I'm like, I'm sort of like hungry for those sort of explorations because I I'm fascinated by quote, you know, I guess you could call it internet horror. Yeah. And um, because I'm like, how are kids process, you know, how, how are they drawing all of that in and and expelling it in a way that capitalizes on what their unique fears are having grown up in that? But mm-hmm. conversely, we're talking about Gen X. And I think one thing I wanted to talk to you about was music, because mm-hmm. clearly, uh, you know, this is a book that is really rooted in the punk scene, specifically Husker Du, Bob Mould, mm-hmm. uh, artists of that vein, and which was really fun because I've, I'm a, not a huge Bob Mould fan, but I've seen him live several times because he always plays Riot Fest here in Chicago. Oh, great. And he, yeah, and he's just, he's fantastic. So like, obviously his work in punk like factors, like, pretty heavily in this novel. I'm curious if art's relationship to this kind of music is similar to your own, or if this is something that you maybe, I don't know, pursued uh, in service to the character. Um, oh, I definitely leaned like, and probably for a lot of readers made this too much of an autobiographical read. Um, <laughs> you know, part of that was a little bit of my own sort of logic puzzle that I, you know, we talked about a little bit in setting up the ambiguity. I was like, oh, this is going to be a found memoir. 
And the title of the book fell into my lap because at my, at my school, uh, a student started a polar bears club. And I was, oh, you nice. know, as, as a teacher, I was like, oh, what a, you know, what a lovely community service thing to do as a professional. It really horror, is so nice. Yeah. But the horror <laughs> writer me is like, oh my God, I got to use this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so because this, you know, in the person who started, it was, you know, not a big personality, very quiet, you know, very nice kid. So it made me think of me in high school. It's like, there's no way I could have done that. I was, you know, way too awkward and, you know, not self-confident. So immediately that seemed like a nice, um, a nice piece of tension. Like, okay, so this is going to be a memoir by the high school me or a fictional stand-in for me. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, so then I was like, oh, who found this memoir? And that's sort of, you know, where Mercy came from a little bit. Because if it's a yeah. found memoir, somebody's going to find it. Oh, and if she finds it, she's definitely going to write stuff on it. Um, so anyway, yes. Um, because especially the first half of the high school stuff is so autobiographical. You know, I figured, yeah, why not? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, celebrate, you know, my love of Bob Mould and Husker Du. Like, and honestly, like when I first started writing, I was messing around with music. And I think if I still had a time machine, it could go back and someone said, hey, you could be a semi-successful punk mm. musician. I would probably still choose that over writing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's so, cool. yeah. So, I mean, that's all that, you know, a lot of that stuff, you know, happened, <laughs> uh, including Bob Mould signing my social security card. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, really scribbling on it. He doesn't do signatures. So <laughs> that's and cool. the, fun, the fun part was like having that sort of weave in. This isn't a huge spoiler into the maybe vampirism. Like it was yeah. kind of fun, like how a lot of that stuff would would find a way to line up with that sort of side of the story. Were you listening to a lot of this music while you were writing? Not while I was physically writing, but certainly like walking the dog and, you know, and doing stuff like if I, I'll write to music, but it has to be stuff without uh, lyrics. Yeah. like I do. I do love, I do love lyrics. So I tend to listen to it. So I've, I listen to a lot of, I don't know, probably stereotypical horror listening, like, you know, uh, soundtracks and things like that. Yeah. Like John Carpenter and fun. That's. that's Yeah. uh, So like I did, I used the movie Ravenous, 1999 Ravenous. That score is awesome. For like three or four novels. Uh, for this one, I used a lot of um, The Witch and Oh yeah, The Witch and what was the next movie that he, uh, Eggers did? Oh, The Lighthouse. Thank you, Lighthouse, because it's the same composer. Um, but yeah, yeah, so that that's why I listen to if I'm actually writing. Do you keep up with modern punk music, or are you kind of old school? Um, I probably lean more old school, but I try my best to keep up. You know, definitely new bands that I find, which is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I'm not going to as many shows <laughs> as I would love to. Yeah, sure. maybe like too much on brand. Like the last show I saw before the pandemic started was a Bob Mould show, and the first oh, person, nice. the first show I saw during the pandemic was a Bob show. Um, yeah, but you know, I do have friends who who try to keep me current, which is great, and they'll send me stuff. <laughs> um, I'm curious if you know because I just find this such a fascinating bit of info. Did you know Bob Mould wrote for WCW wrestling in the '90s? I did. Yes. <laughs> uh, one, I have a friend who's a big wrestling fan, so he, he made sure I knew about that. But Bob wrote a a memoir that's fantastic. Yeah. It's yeah. called See a Little Light. So he talks a little bit about that. I've always found that to be, I love it when sort of an artist I love in one area careens into something that is completely different, but something I also love, which is professional yeah. wrestling. So I've always appreciated that about Bob. Um, yeah. yeah. Mel, uh, do you want to tackle the next one? Um, let me see where we are here. I guess I wanted talk to talk about know... the haters, Mel. Talk about the haters. Talk no. about the haters. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are there are haters out there yeah. who you know we've already touched on this in terms of like they just want to know what the truth is. They want the unassailable truth. Right. Um, and I guess for me that just sounds like as Randall said, I'm someone who will really like wallow like a pig in mud and ambiguity. <laughs> and I just love I just love being there because I feel like it's a more active way of 
reading rather than a passive way. Like you become involved in the story. You learn about yourself based on your interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and your books to me feel kind of like these sprawling, complex Rorschach te- like tests where at the end you're like, what did I see and what does that say about me? <laughs> um, so what do you think this book is trying to reveal about its readers as they read it? <laughs> or put another way, like what is it challenging them to ask about themselves? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, tip, honestly, like I, typically I always start with like, I want to write something that I would want to read and the hope and sort of the trust is that there are enough readers out there who, who, who feel the same way, you know? So, um, you know, chasing like a market for me, it just seems like a, a fool's game. Like cause mm. the market always moves. Like I have no idea what, <laughs> if I knew what was going to be a bestseller in a year or two, I'd write that. I have no idea. Yeah. I can't imagine putting that pressure on myself. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think as I'm getting older, I'm finding more and more I'm interested in books that um, books that are meant to be experienced as a book, right? That's not like just, you know, as much as we're going to talk about a movie later, <laughs> you know, this book was meant to be a book. You know, if it was being made to a movie, it'd be totally something different. Like, yeah. I like the idea of reading a book and not like calling it a mind movie, which makes me so crazy Sure, <laughs> if I ever hear a reference to that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess sort of like the the wounded petulant side of me would be like, ah, oh, there are too many readers who are so used to television and TV. They just want to know what's next, what's next, what's next, as opposed to, for me, a big part of reading is getting into the interior lives of characters and, and, and the other ancillary stuff that you can't do in a movie, or you would have to do it in a much different way. Um, that said specifically, uh, you know, in terms of art, like, one thing I was kind of hoping for some of the readers to take away like was, and I knew it was going to be a challenge. And this was part of mercy's role of being there was, you know, art, (laughs) I don't know how likable he is, which is kind of hard to admit given (laughs) he's 80% me, (laughs) but I know he's challenging because he's so dour. And so, you know, a little bit, woe is me, but also by the end of the book, I think pretty clearly as an adult, he's someone who's suffering with anxiety and depression and that's hard to be around. I mean, yeah. you know, as a friend or as a person, you know, as a family member, you just want them to be better. You just want them to be happy. And you get frustrated because there's no visible, right? There's no visible ailment or wound that you can just like slap a Band-Aid on. And, you know, and that can be hard and exhausting to be around. Um, you know, and that was a little bit of what Art was 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 going for. And Mercy was there to sort of try to cut some of that tension and call him on his own bullshit and, mm-hmm. and be a little bit of a, a relief from that at the same time. Um yeah. So, I mean, at the same time, you know, it's a journey of someone who wasn't very successful. Like, I don't know. All my, I think all stories should be about outsiders and art is definitely one of them. Yeah. So that's like one outsider's sort of very strange life. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm very. Oh God. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think the one of the most frightening parts of the book for me is that there is this ever-present danger of just getting so caught up in the whirlpools of your own head mm-hmm. and your, your own theories that you develop about life and about how other people see you. Um, and the consequences of that when you get caught in those whirlpools are, are really far-reaching and also self-perpetuating. Right. And is that a tendency that, that you're trying to be conscious of in, in your day-to-day life or that you were? Or do you look for it in yourself or in other people? Is that like a worry that you carry? Wow, that's an amazing question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. And I would say, sorry, yes, two things. One, uh, I get asked all the time, like, how come you're still teaching high school? <laughs> you know, and one, of, and one of the reasons writing and teaching has always been tied together for me. So part of me is afraid that if I break that <laughs> chain, sure. you know, the writing is going to go away. But honestly, part of it is the fear of spending too much time in my head, knowing that, like, since I, I dwell on worst case scenarios so often and use my fiction for that, like, is that a headspace I want to be in all the time, as yeah. opposed to going to school and interacting with students and, you know, worrying about them as opposed to me kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, that's definitely a fear. I think that plays out either consciously or subconsciously in the Paul Bears Club, but also Paul Bears Club's a pandemic novel, even though it never talks about it. Right. Uh, it was written in the teeth of the start of the pandemic. Like, <laughs> I I sent like uh, thirty pages in a in a in a rough outline to my publisher in May of 2020, and spent the next year writing it. Yeah. So that isolation, that time that we all spent, sort of in our own heads, is definitely <laughs> informed that novel. Like, I, I mean. Like most people, you know, we were super careful in my house, even, you know, I was teaching, so I was going to school and coming back. But like, you know, it's so weird to think about, man, there was like a year, like I didn't see like my siblings in person for like mm-hmm. seven or eight months or, or yeah. things like that. So, you know, and I at think, the same time, you're getting that yeah. information glut and it's right. going to be like yeah. feeding into whatever you're thinking about in that isolation. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, all that definitely. I mean, how could it not go into the novel, even just by osmosis went into it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like for me. What hit me so hard with this book was the central relationship, like art and mercy. Like these are two people who are sort of inexorably drawn to each other, despite there being this, at least on art's part. But the thing is like, you know, she's also hanging out in his basement and stuff, right? So uh, it's like there's this real itching paranoia that's sort of creeping around the edges of this relationship. Uh, so I guess I'm curious, like, how did you cultivate that dynamic in particular? Because, you know, there is a part of me that is like, he's working through something like with this relationship because lord knows like when i read it i've had those like those kind of paranoid but i don't know compulsive relationships that where you keep like meeting drifting meeting drifting and that's i think and i that's why i love sort of the the scope of the book the fact that you span so many decades because and then this one person who keeps coming in and out of your life there's something haunting but also beautiful but also you know in the realm of this novel which is very paranoid in a lot of ways like there is a relatable there's a relatability to that so i don't know like that dynamic when you approach that what were you thinking about thank you yeah so I, mean, I don't want to make the book sound too boring. People haven't read it. Hopefully it's fun. <laughs> but it's yeah, I mean, boring. yeah, in a lot of ways, I mean, the book sort of explores for me, like my relationship with 
writing slash creativity mm, in both yeah. ways that it's healthy and not so healthy. But in terms of uh, mercy specifically in art, you know, I sort of jokingly said earlier, I'm like 80% art, depending on the day, <laughs> maybe on a bad day, more like 90%. Um, and mercy is, you know, I won't, I won't quite add to 100%. So we'll leave 5% for just general fiction. Sure. Right? Mercy, in a lot of ways, is my interior editor or my interior critic, not only just of my writing, but of, of my life. Yeah. And, you know, at least in terms of like the original framework, that's how they started. But the fun thing for me as a writer is like, you start with like this loose framework for characters and I always space my characters on other people usually or myself. And it's fun to see them become their own things because when yeah. you give them choices and decisions to make and stuff like that, then they be, you know, hopefully they grow and become their own thing. So that's really sort of Mercy's initial role was like, okay, I'm going to put this yammering, self-doubting inner editor I have to work for this book. Yeah. <laughs> you know, once I, once I knew I, once I knew I was going to have, you know, margin comments and stuff like that. Yeah. I feel like so often I think of writing as an exercise and like, what would a worse version of myself do? And like, let's <laughs> explore that. And then to put the like other voice in there that yeah. <laughs> that's so, uh, wow, that's a really cool. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think Mercy definitely helps art out. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, whether or not she's actually feeding yeah. off of empirically, she's not helping him in that case, but you know, she like helps him find sort of his lifelong passion. I mean, she, there, yeah. you know, it was fun to write like a, I don't know if I call it a fully toxic relationship, <laughs> although maybe it is, but it is one of those relationships that is complicated. That's weird. And, you know, maybe you're not good for each other totally. Uh, and like when you're together, it's so intense and then you're going to be apart for 10 years and you fall right. Right back into the same things. Yeah. And yeah. honestly, you like you expressed it earlier to me at, at, in one conversation that was like, sometimes you have friends that, that give you energy in a certain way and they sap energy in a certain way. And it's, <laughs> yeah. it's always negotiating that balance. Well, you know, the, obviously there's like an overt theme of vampirism in this, but I thought a lot of, and you know, and obviously I think an overt theme of mental, like emotional vampirism. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I know many people in my life who they've described people and I have too, like as emotional vampires, you know, like people who you're around them and maybe right. you like them or maybe you don't, but they, you feels like they're sapping something from you you know and that's like the vibe i got from this relationship and like i said you're not wrong like i think mercy is a really positive presence in his life but there is also something that is like completely mysterious and unknowable about her mm -hmm. but then also the scene where they reconnect and this isn't a spoiler or anything but it's like that scene where they reconnected then they just like watch tv together like the like he stays the night and then it's they just watch tv together the next day that scene is so real to me because i've done that like see somebody you haven't seen in 10 years and then you you just spend like two complete full days with them right. and yeah i don't know that to me was was just incredibly um realistic but also complex like I, that's why i i just dig that because you mentioned like is it it's the ambiguity right it's like like is this a toxic relationship is this a healthy or unhealthy relationship? Mm. You, it's not like you don't need the yes or no answer to that. It does exist in that same realm of ambiguity as everything mm. else does. And that to mm. me is uh, it's a hard trick to pull off because it's so hard to to dramatize and like put into a fictional, uh, you know, premise. So anyways, um, don't have a question, just observation. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, I, I really appreciate that. Because <laughs> I'm just talking through it because I'm like, oh, shit, yeah. I feel seen. Um, uh, I do. Not, I want to. Yeah. Um, pivot towards cabin a little bit with uh one of my favorite horror themed icebreakers and you even mentioned earlier in this interview sometimes <laughs> you get scared alone when you're in your house because you might yeah. hear some noises <laughs> and i do that all the time i freak myself out but i like to ask people when that is happening to you and you're like shit someone might be in the house are you envisioning a flesh and blood home invader who's like a real person that you could theoretically combat or are you envisioning something paranormal or, or ghostly or something supernatural 
I I think I'm envisioning <laughs> more of the paranormal supernatural, even though I don't believe in it like 95% of the time, <laughs> yeah. which is so bizarre. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think probably because like if I was envisioning like a real flesh and blood person, that might actually be too scary. <laughs> you know, because if you're envisioning a paranormal, that that leaves a chance of the ambiguity. Hey, maybe it's not. It's just a noise, right? Maybe I need to figure out what it wants. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. When it comes yeah. to the supernatural, you say 95% you don't believe in. Is that like the logical math brain working? Yeah. Like, I mean, as a, like an agnostic atheist yeah. math person, um, my my friend Stephen Graham Jones, who, who himself is a, I'm sure you've all read, a genius writer. Yeah, he's been on this like, podcast. Yeah. I've been on many uh, panels and interviews with him, and he finally got fed up with me with my answer to the questions. Like, <laughs> if you if you say you don't believe 95 percent of the time, that means you actually believe. So, you should, uh, <laughs> like, he actually pulled math on me. He's like, damn it, he's right. <laughs> but it's like those moments where I'm home alone, or if I wake up after a terrible nightmare, those are the times where it's like, oh, there's a demon in the house, or something, yes. you know. And then the next morning, I'm like, oh, that's. Totally silly, you know. Sorry, I just love to ask horror writers if they actually believe in ghosts. It's just fun to me. Um, I've I've never experienced it, so like I'm kind of like I I'm, I guess I'm ghost agnostic. I would need to yeah. see it. Um, I'm the so same. That, I, yeah. I think it's just we're so inundated with that media growing up that for me, when I'm like, what would be the scariest possibility for me to envision right now? It's like pulling back the shower curtain and some grisly and supernatural in there, rather right. than a person. <laughs> but. <laughs> So you've said that the cabin at the end of the world is your take on the home invasion genre. Um, can you elaborate on that? Like what made you feel like you wanted to to tackle that genre and what elements did you want to preserve versus subvert or play with? So, yeah, I mean, I got a little lucky with, uh, with cabin as a story because uh, it was funny. When, when was this? This was April of 2016. My editor had just rejected a different novel proposal. Mm. And I, frankly, I was relieved because I wrote like a ridiculous 30 page long summary, <laughs> like summaries should not be more than 10 pages. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I feel like I already wrote this book. Like I, like I was sort of dreading like writing it again. And she's like, nah, you know, can you, you know, pitch me something else? And I was relieved. So anyway, I was flying. I actually was on an airplane. I'd gone to a book festival in LA and I was flying back home. And I, I keep a little notebook where I, I don't, I wish I could write stories longhand, but I just like take notes or doodle or brainstorm. And so I drew a little cabin in my notebook. Um, without even paying attention. Um, and I was like, oh, and I drew like little stick figures, family around it. Cause like it instantly made me think of the home invasion subgenre, like if alone in a cabin in the woods, which is a very mm -hmm. typical, stereotypical setup. But, you know, thinking about that, I was like, oh, there really aren't that very many home invasion stories that I like. Yeah. There's so many, partly because it's so terrifying, so icky. Um, but there are also a lot that just like, you know, really lean into the violence for the sake of violence, which I'm not necessarily into. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But movies like Eels, uh, the French they, you know, terrifying. Oh, yes, movie. yeah, that movie's great. Um, I think Harsh is great. And, you know, some of the you know really older ones, like you know, don't be is it afraid of no? What was the one? Was the play? Don't be afraid of the dark or afraid of the dark? Oh, oh, wait until dark. Wait until with, dark. Uh, yeah, yeah, with yeah, 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 I love that. Yeah, I saw that play once as a child, like on Cape Cod, which is kind of strange. And yeah. it was like, whoa. So I mean, that's something that definitely stuck in my head. So that was really just where it started from was that, okay, you know, it was a weird sort of challenge that I was excited by. Like, okay, Mr. Big Mouth, you don't like home invasions. <laughs> How would you do one? Uh, and at the same time, because A Head Full of Ghosts and Disappearance of Devil's Rock both featured different kinds of families under distress and a, and a supernatural ambiguous element. I thought, even though it's not a trilogy of books, I thought it would be cool to have like a three book arc. Yeah. Um, so like part of, I don't know how spoiler you want to get, but it's fine. Like I wanted one of the things was like, well, we've seen a home invasion where 
obviously the people who live there get killed. We've mm-hmm. seen home invasion movies where the invade, the, you know, the people who live there turn the tables and attack them. Right. Like, what's a different spin we can have on that? <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. what if the invaders showed up and started killing each other? That'd be really weird. <laughs> yeah. Why would they do that? And that's sort of like how I started, you know, getting, you know, into what eventually the book became. Yeah. yeah. And I I do also love the take that is, it's sort of the antithesis of that famous line from the strangers where they're like, why are you doing this? And they're like, because you were home. And here it's like, we have this, yeah. this grand reason. And also we don't really want to be doing this, which yeah. I think is, is super complicating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah. So the movie adaptation isn't out yet. Uh, so none of us have seen it. Well, I mean, you probably have <laughs> I seen it. I have not seen it yet. Nope. Yeah, okay. Interesting. So we don't know how, quote unquote, faithful it is to the source material. But I wonder if that word faithful is even appropriate, seeing as books will always uh, be able to do things right. that movies can't and vice versa. You mentioned that earlier. So it's like knowing this, like what elements or characteristics of the book do you think or hope will belong solely to the book? And what elements would you want to see like amplified or or perhaps even invented by the movie? Well, wow, that's a hard question to answer. I mean, I mean, it's a good question. Like, I don't know if there's anything I would necessarily want to be like solely for the book. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's something that happens in that book that's very disturbing. <laughs> and I can yeah. totally understand if people didn't want to, you know, see that in the movie kind of thing. Um, I don't know. I, I, I'm really partial to the ending of my book. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe it's the math part of me, but like a lot of logic went into it as to why I did it for certain reasons. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I don't know, like, I'll be interested. I mean, I read the screenplay that they yeah. use. So I mean, but that's different than actually seeing it on screen. So like, I know, in broad strokes that, you know, the first two acts of the book and the movie are essentially the same with like some minor tweaks here and there. And then the third acts are different for both. Right. Um, so anyone who's read the book will definitely be surprised by the movie, I think. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I want to see I want to see, you know, feel the emotions of you know being in the moment of the movie. I don't know if I'll be able to do that, though, because I'll always be you know, it's a good problem to have if it's a problem, <laughs> you know, comparing, you know, the story in my, that's been, you know, lived in my head for, you know, five years compared to what's folding, unfolding on the screen. Yeah, um, I, I feel like I've, I think I saw that you have had some short films made out of your work. Is this the first feature? Yeah, nothing. Oh, nothing. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, like what do, are you, are you nervous? Like, like, is this, is this, uh, like, how are you approaching this experience? Uh, Cause you said you're leaving for the premiere tomorrow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'll see the premiere on the 30th, uh, Monday tomorrow. Yeah. Um, no, nervous, excited, uh, all the emotions. I mean, it's, it's very exciting. And, you know, Lisa and, you know, my two older kids, I mean, I only have two kids. I'm describing them as older, <laughs> Get, are, you know, are getting to go to the premiere too, which is amazing. Oh, so fun. I'm just really excited about that. I hope my daughter, Emma, who just turned 18, but already has five tattoos, <laughs> we'll we'll get we'll get to meet David Batista and compare tattoos with him. Oh, nice! <laughs> Incredible. Um, yeah. So I'm. I mean, I got a taste of it because I did get to go to the set for two days. I mean, that cool. was really. I mean, that was like the Disneyland moment for me or Disney World moment. So walking into this cabin that they built and that you drew in a little know, notebook, and now David yeah. Batista's walking around in there. Right. Oh man, he's huge. Uh, <laughs> you know, and meeting the other actors and and night and just seeing like all the stuff that goes into a movie uh, yeah. that was just like, <laughs> you know, what, it, you know, messed with my head uh, in a good way. Like it was very, mm-hmm. you know, it was very surreal. So yeah, I think I this read is the next step when I see the movie. Yeah. Your next um, project might have to do with, with Hollywood or horror movies. Is that correct? Can you tell us <laughs> anything about it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well, the next thing that will be out though, is a short story collection right. called the, the beast you are, mm-hmm. um, which will be out in July. So it's short stories plus one, uh, one novella 
And speaking of things that can't be filmed, <laughs> the, novella, <laughs> the novella is, uh, you know, about 100, well, 30,000 words. So it's almost a short novel. Yeah. It's anthropomorphic animals, uh, you know, talking, all talking animals. Love it. With a giant monster that shows up every 30 years. And also a cat that that's a slasher. Uh, <laughs> and I wrote it in free verse, the freest of all possible verse. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah, and it's hard to explain why I did it, but it was a lot of fun. So, yeah, I don't think that's going to be a movie anytime soon. But uh, Hey, they've did... adapted Watership Down like three times now. So. <laughs> right, well, that's true. No, I mean, this novella is definitely like a love letter to Watership Down and uh, Secret of Nim or Rats of mm-hmm, Nim, depending mm-hmm. if you read the book or seen the movie. Right. Um, but, uh, but Mel, you referenced, I, I did just finish a draft of a novel that I'm calling Horror Movie a Novel. Oh, hell yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it deals with a movie that, almost got fully made in the early to mid nineties and now is trying to be rebooted kind of thing. Is it like, I won't ask him, I won't ask dumb questions, but I love like haunted media uh, stories. Like we talked to Gemma files uh, recently on this podcast and she does a lot of what she calls like found fiction, like found footage, you know? And uh, so I've, I've I've always been really into like, do you know Ramsey Campbell's book, like grin of the dark? Uh, Yeah. Like, I love haunted movies and haunted media. So this is very exciting to me. I mean, I don't know if yeah. your movie is haunted, but the idea of like a film where, I don't know, like something horrible happened on it or something. And that actually meeting eyes is to me right. an under underutilized trope in fiction. So, yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely the case. I think what hopefully will make this book a little bit different. I mean, there is the idea of a curse film, but sort of like what I've tried to do with a lot of the other tropes that I've played with, um, I try to really ground it to make it seem as realistic as possible. So if there is a curse, it's, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily call this like a fully ambiguous novel, but it's more, Mm -hmm. you know, if there's a curse, like, you know, does it have to be a supernatural kind of thing? Can it just be like, you know, these things sort of happened. Um, I'm sort of, it's being presented somewhat like it's the character who played, I guess we'll call him the villain in in the movie that was made in the nineties you know, is narrating an audiobook of his experience, both oh. on the set and trying to reboot it. And that's intercut with the entire screenplay. This really whacked out, breaks all the rules screenplay of the 1993 movie. Um, Love it. Yeah. yeah. The textual stuff is like so fun. Um, is that, are there Thanks. like, do you think about that a lot? Are you like, what else can I, what kind of medium can I like work in? Or like, what's something I haven't tackled yet? I definitely think about it all the time. I, I mean, I don't know. I like bells and whistles like that. But, you know, the challenge becomes if you're going to use it, it has to be there for a reason. Yeah. Um, so typically I don't sit and think, oh, what am I going to do next? Like I'll think of a story and then like, okay, I'm going to write about this movie. Oh, I'm going to include the screenplay. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, like it's the, the challenge is finding why it has to be there. I wrote this uh, novelette for my collection, Growing Things, called Notes from the Dog Walkers is a, is a good example. Yeah. That like I had oh like we I just adopted an older dog and our kids were older so n- no one was gonna be home like all the time so I was like we we better get a dog walker for her and so the dog walkers came in they would leave like these little notes and the notes were hysterical to me because it <laughs> they were just like the daycare notes that we got I was like oh I have to I have to write a story using dog you know notes from dog walkers but I was like shit how, how do you do that like. <laughs> It took me two years. I wasn't constantly thinking about it for two years, but mm-hmm. right. you know, it took me two years to find a way or to find a story that needed that format to do it. Right. Um, so, so I guess for me, that's a thing. Yeah. 
We talk about King, obviously, a lot on this podcast. We're a Stephen King podcast, and Mm -hmm. we're always coming through interviews, and we've talked to King as well. And, you know, and the idea, what always kind of, I think, comes through with him, and especially when you look at how prolific he is and the the sheer breadth of his work over all these years, is there is a compulsion in him to write. And I look at you, and you also teach, and you also have a family, and... uh, and you you publish a lot, and so I'm curious. Like, is would you describe your drive to write uh, as a compulsion? Like, yeah, or how would you sort of characterize your relationship to writing? Yeah, I mean, I guess it is a compulsion in some sense. I mean, I don't think it's as strong as Stevens or or Stephen Graham Jones, who I mentioned. I mean, sure. that dude literally has to be writing all the time. <laughs> yeah, like, I've I've been on a panel with Stephen sitting next to him. And I saw him writing stuff on a napkin. I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I had a story idea. And he wrote like the first two paragraphs. Like he writes stories on plane rides. It's like, that's not me. Like I, I wish, like I, I'm, I feel like I'm much more, uh, I don't know, I, I can't write that fast. Like, even though it seems like, and I guess I have published quite a bit, but like, it feels to me, it, it, I don't write that fast. It takes, sure. me, a, a, it takes me at least a year to write a novel. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe short stories get fit in in between somewhere. But to me, my I feel very deliberate in my process. What, what ends up happening though, if if a story really, if, I, if I'm really interested in a story, that definitely takes takes me over. Like I get obsessed with it, and I think about it all the time. That's how I know it's. I don't know if it's good, but yeah. it's what I want to work on. I mean, that's an important distinction. Like because you know sometimes you get other new shiny ideas while you're working on something, and that can always just be like a, you know, the devil on your shoulders. Like no, do this instead. Um, like, yeah. no, uh, you know, I, I got to stay focused on this one. Yeah. So we were talking about movies. I'm curious if you had any updates on the Headful of Ghosts adaptation that Scott Cooper was working on. Yeah. So um, it's still under option. Um, Scott Cooper is no longer attached. Okay. Uh, it I, it would have been made summer of 2020 with him if if not for the pandemic. Obviously, oh, there are much sucks. bigger problems in the world. Sure. Um, but, you know, so many other productions got canceled during, you know, the summer of 2020. Yeah. Um, so they, they pretty much have restarted from scratch. Um, so I can't say too much, but it's the same original two production teams, yeah. uh, Allegiance Theater and Team Downey, you know, and they've been very great and always, you know, been wanting to tell this story. So I appreciate, I appreciate their persistence. Um, it sounds like things are getting closer again. They have a new sort of director team, uh, attached that I can't say yet in a new screenplay. So yeah. hopeful, maybe something start hap- starts happening this year. Um, the other one that feels like in a, it's in a similar spot, you know, has a director and a really good screenplay, a Survivor song. Okay. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, like in, in the case of A Head Full of Ghosts, they've had it since 2015. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, it always, to me, it seems like even though there's so much stuff out there, it's a minor miracle when anything actually gets all the way to the end. I was going to say, like so many things get caught up in that, you know, the wheels move slowly until they don't, right? Because it seems right. like like cab- like cabin sort of came together relatively quickly. It seems as a well, you know. you know, once a night. So what I think what it took is someone like Knight to show up and like you know he re- was really drawn to the, the the idea of the choice, right? That, that was really what sort of uh, made him excited, you know. And he had a movie deal in place, so it became right. like, well, if he wants to make this movie, he gets to make it. But right, you know, the the novel is actually optioned in 2017, six months before it was published. Yeah, you know, and Knight didn't oh my, really, co- yeah. Knight didn't even really start like coming around until you know two years later. Where like at first uh, he was like, oh, maybe I'll produce it with different these different directors and different screenplay. Yeah, and then I was like, oh, I think he wants to do it, but he has to finish old first, and then 
you know, so there was still like quite a bit of waiting, but like once, yeah. <laughs> once things started happening, it, it, it definitely was, you know, it did happen fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I saw that you are also working on a screenplay or two. And what is that like, like switching from <laughs> a, like novel or short story or prose mode to like to screenplay mode? Yeah. Like I'm, pr- I'm sure I'm not very good at it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, maybe it's the, the punk person in me who always wants to like, <laughs> who always wants to like, you know, um, I don't know what word I'm looking for is, but like rejects authority, but like the authority of the screenplay, like everything has to be in three oh, acts sure. and there has to be beats. I'm like, why? Why can't we just tell a story? Like, you know, <laughs> one of my favorite movies, The Wailing, that doesn't have three acts. How many acts yeah. does that have? Like seven, <laughs> 17. <five>? Yeah. <laughs> um, so at the same time, I wouldn't be so arrogant to assume like I'm going to be able to write great screenplays. I mean, no, it's a totally different form. So I've been tipping my toe in, like I've been trying to do it a little bit and my my novel horror movie a novel is kind of fun to sort of cheat my way into writing a screenplay mm-hmm. i was you know, gonna say into the it, book. was that sort of inspired by your brushes and with hollywood oh definitely uh inspired by less cabin initially because i i but i had actually started the novel before i got to do the cabin set but it was certainly inspired by like the fun and also sometimes totally inane and annoying <laughs> production meetings that i've had with people like some oh, people yeah. have been great some people have been less than great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, there was that in there for sure. Um, but I would say mainly inspired, like I got sort of re-obsessed with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, the movie, Best the original. Movie ever. Yeah. And I listened to Gunnar Hansen's audiobook, Fantastic. Chainsaw Confidential, uh, which is, wow, he was a really good writer. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So like that and like my experience, like, oh, you know, it was almost like, well, what if the chainsaw had slipped, you know? <laughs> And, you know, like what would have happened kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the movie that I write about is not quite, it's, it's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's a different sort of thing. But that was just sort of the things that sort of goosed me into that direction. But a, a shorter, less rambly answer. Sorry, Mel. Uh, I've been working with some you know, young, incredibly talented filmmakers. And we've been just like picking our, our way through a couple of my short stories. And we've tried, we've been trying to expand a couple uh, into like a feature length. Yeah, one we've we've we didn't do a screenplay. We've prepared like a, you know, twenty minute sort of pitch treatment, um, and another one because it's getting harder and harder to sell things without a screenplay. Yeah, I think we're gonna try to write a screenplay Oof. for something else together. Yeah, so but I mean that's fun. I, I've learned a lot from uh, uh, from those two. Yeah, that's awesome. So we like to end these episodes uh, by asking for recommendations for other horror or even just horror adjacent yeah. authors, because our listeners, you know, we love Stephen King, but it's it's sometimes hard to sort of navigate the modern horror scene and find what it is that uh, is maybe on the fringes that, you know, you want to chase down. So who are some right. authors that you're excited by these days? Um, so I already mentioned Stephen Graham Jones. So I'd mention him one more time. His novel. Uh, Don't fear the Reaper comes out in like a week or so. Yeah, uh, which is which is great. It's a, it is a sequel to My Heart Is a Chainsaw, uh, but like any good sequel, you can read it without having read the first. But you should go read the first also. <laughs> a book that came out in the fall that's been one of my favorites is Rachel Harrison's uh, Such Sharp Teeth. Oh yeah, um, it's a really fun. You know, it starts off as a fun werewolf novel. I mean, it is fun the whole time, but it gets pretty deep and dark in places too. That uh, I wasn't necessarily expecting based on like how sort of the humor of the opening kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, cause it, this comes out next week. Um, I, I don't know you get to a certain age <laughs> as a Gen Xer and maybe anybody you think, Oh, like my top five is set. Like if you keep a top five set of books sure. set in your head 
And when I read this book last summer, an early version of it, I was like, oh my God, like this is one of my favorite books I've ever read, <gasps> top five. Um, and it's Mariana Enriquez's Our Share of Night. Oh, shit. Yeah. Write that one down. Yeah. It's a 700 page epic. The publisher is describing it as Roberto Bolaño meets Stephen King. Oh, um, my gosh. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It takes place, well, it takes place over multiple decades, but mainly in the 80s during Argentina's dir- dirty war. But it's so good. There are parts that are just like so grounded. Um, and then there are parts that are so genuinely disturbing. Yeah. Um, I'm looking forward to it coming out next week because I'm going to reread it again. Yeah. Um, you know, w- with the actual hard copy. Any non horror engaging with these days? Oh, um, man, I'm so I, I've been watching a lot of football. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm curious. Like, uh, was, like for horror writers, I'm always curious. What are the non-genre stuff that you're into? So you're a big sports guy. I am. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. Closet sports guy. Just because I know like so many you know, the people I'm friends with in the horror community aren't necessarily so I'm not yeah. going to bore people by talking about it, but yeah, <laughs> you know, it's something, you know, in the family I grew up in, like viewing sports was always like a connection between my brother and sister and, and father and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah. I'm sort of this, <laughs> this fall winter, my way to unplug, like it has my escape is like sports. Like I know other people's escape is to read For me. Reading is like, that's what I do to be me. Like if I want to shut my brain off, I, I watch sports. Yeah. Reading um, is the deep, the deep thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I am listening to a nonfiction audiobook. Um, but you know, it's that's real life horror. So I don't know if it qualifies. It's I mean, it's I hesitate to say it's really good because it's based on such awfulness, but it's an oh, amazing sure. book. Uh The Escape Artist. It just came out recently. One. It's about a man who escaped uh Auschwitz. Oh, and shit. oh wow. It, he and because of his escape, he was the one that let the world know, hey, this is what was happening. Because before his escape, you know. The Nazis had been able to sort of keep what they were doing, you know, keep their final solution, what they were doing pretty much under wraps in terms of what the rest of the world knew. Yeah. By Jonathan Friedland. Yeah. I'd not yes. heard of this, but it, yeah, it just came out of the summer. Just came out. Will, yeah. Yeah. I'll check that out. Well, man, Paul, this has been fantastic. Like we're, we love Paul Bear's Club. We love Knock the Cabin and we uh, cannot wait to uh, see the movie. So thank <laughs> you so much for yeah, spending some time with us and chatting about King and about your work and, and everything else. So Mel, any oh, final you. thoughts? Um, I, <laughs> no, I read Cabin at the End of the World in like, I would say eight hours um, this week. And it was a reread for me. And I just had such a good time, especially right after Paul Bearer's Club to even compare the two. So so thank you again, Paul. It's It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank yeah. you. I'm honored. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Well, we look forward to great things for you and uh, hopefully we'll cross paths again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. All right. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you good. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs> <laughs>